Good to see everybody as we're getting started today in a new study about the community of God's grace. Like how do we live as a community of people? Sort of digging into that for the weeks ahead in a study of that New Testament book called Titus. It's back there in those tea books with first and second Timothy and the Thessalonians, the letters to them. So we're going to start. It sort of begins with this connect, this question, like how connected you feel God is with our world? How engaged do you believe God is? I mean, is he off somewhere else in a distance sort of watching or is he intimately engaged with us moment by moment. Maybe you heard this past week, sort of a shocking scene for you NFL fans at Monday Night Football. The Buffalo Bills played Bengals in Cincinnati at their home. And in the middle of the game, maybe you, again, maybe you heard about this, Buffalo Bills safety, Damar Hamlin, he stood up just after taking a hit and then, wow, he just fell right over. I mean, it's the strangest thing to see the video of this. It was a heart attack right there on the field. And sort of the fans look on as staff came out. And you can see a picture. The players sort of surround Damar and they're praying. They're kneeling and praying around him on the field. And by the way, as some who are praying, you can just see tears streaming down many of their faces. This is a guy they know. He's a part of their organization. They play ball with him. They know him. They're there in prayer. They're weeping. And like one of the amazing things is that happened, live telecasting for ESPN, Dan Orlovsky, you may be for familiar with him, he prompted the commentators, the others, he stopped right there on live TV, ESPN, and he asked everybody to pray. God, we come to you in these moments that we don't understand, that are hard because we believe you're God and coming to you and praying to you has impact. We're sad, we're angry, and we want answers, but some things are unanswerable. We just want to pray, truly come to you and pray for strength for Damar, for healing for Damar, for comfort for Damar, to be with his family and to give them peace. And we're so thankful that like a couple days later from the hospital there in Cincinnati, he woke up. He started to talk to people, even though doctors said there may be some, possibly some brain damage and difficulty improving. You know, the amazing thing was like, wow, the, uh, the NFL halted the game. They didn't go back and finish it. And for a moment, they acknowledged something was more important than football. <laughs> wow, like a miracle, right? This whole scene is beautiful. By the way, he's not out of the woods. Please keep praying for him and his recovery. But it made me wonder, how often do we, do we see that connection between us and God? How often do we pray? I mean, do we have to wait until a person is face down on the field to actually pray? Or in our lives, do we have to wait until like the emergency? And then it started forcing me to ask the question, I mean, does that how we see God? He shows up, we call on him when emergencies happen, right? Or do we see that he's a part of everything in our world? He's engaged with us in our world. Now the study is called the community of grace because what we're gonna learn is that God did not only wire our world, uh, through the gospel and us for community, but he's a part of that living community of his people. And he calls us to join with him, to, to walk with him as we follow him in Christ. Here's how the book begins. By the way, you, there's a Bible. There are a lot of them in front of you in the pew. You can find this in the pew Bible. Way in the back, the book of Titus. 
I'll just read the introduction. We'll get a start today um, in this book, and you'll also see it on the wall. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. Would you pray together with me? Do you pray? Lord, how can we not feel it? How can we not just sense this from the marrow of our bones Lord, we have to be guided and led to a life together as human beings. Lord, we look around us and it's with fear and wonder that, like, how is it going to work? Not just in one nation, we we see the division here, but all across the world, we we see the the fires of conflict and division. Uh, Lead us, Father, into a way that you made for us when you created us. And Lord, teach us as a people right here in this amazing city, how's it gonna happen? How how will we walk together with each other? And how can this be a place that reflects the beautiful diversity of our city without your grace? So we pray, we, we plead with you. Lord, teach us your way. And we thank you and pray in Jesus' name, amen. I think that's the thing. I, as thinking about this study, it's like we need to learn how do we learn to live in this kind of community together? How can we make human community, the relationships between us, flourish? Now, I chose this book because it feels like communities are really unraveling. I mean, if you look at nations around the world, people have come to me recently about Brazil or other Latin American countries and the nations even of Europe. You see what's happening and it seems like communities are on the verge of of blowing up and relationships too. And we are choosing to live because of that. I'm being told we're we're choosing to live with people more like us. Right? So I hope and the body of Christ will be with people very different than ourselves. But it feels like fewer and few, fewer than people do agree with us. And the volume of disrespect, he's going to talk about that in chapter 3 of this book, has reached in our culture like a fever pitch. And don't get me started on social media. Come on, I just sort of pulled away from that. It is so weaponized, it's filled with venom and shaming. It's toxic and so often not helpful. And it has me asking, how is this going to work? How will we be able to live in healthy community going forward. Maybe last year, um, my favorite story from after Christmas comes from a woman who lived out on Long Island. Her name is Sarah Pascucci. And right after, about a month after Christmas, she got an angry um, letter written to her. And part of it said this, take your Christmas lights down. It's Valentine's Day. Here was a neighbor just furious because she still had her, her Christmas decorations up, which, by the way, we still have the manger scene on our front lawn right now. But that's what she got. And, and by the way, her, her house was lit up. You could see. She found herself attacked and shamed. And the reality was her father 
had put those Christmas lights up just a few days after Thanksgiving. And he took pride in doing that every year. And the person who wrote that letter didn't know that her father died of COVID in December, only a week from the death of her aunt. And in January, she had just had the funeral for these two people. And she just couldn't bring herself to take the lights down. They meant so much to her that her, her father loved doing this and it put them up. And I think, you know, we don't even know what other people are going through and listen to what we're saying to each other and about each other. There can be such meanness. How often do we do things without even thinking? I mean, I, I know I do, right? And so, but here was the beautiful thing. So she went out on Facebook and she was a part of a mom's group and she just told the story of, of how hurting she was. And then there was this outpouring of support, right? The word got around, she received flowers. Some people showed up at her house with food and notes. It was beautiful. But you know the, the best thing that happened? Her neighbors climbed up in their attics and they went down into their basements and they pulled out their Christmas decorations and they put them back up again. Like, that's awesome. I mean, what would it do if we lived in a community where we are looking for ways to love one another and come alongside of each other in, in the things that we're going through? What would that be like? That's what it made me wonder if shaming and attacking and that stuff could stop. And what you need to know is this is what happened in a communities when Jesus came. I mean, people who would have never associated with each other, slaves and free and, and rich and poor, people from different cultures began coming together. New communities of love started to emerge. And you see, grace drove out this division. And so I was like, what would that happen if Jesus were to do that here in our city? If he showed that forth here, if the gospel could be seen. And you know, Jesus told that to his disciples. He said, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone know, will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Let me tell you, let me tell you why it would show that Jesus is who he is. Jesus didn't choose people who all agreed with each other. He chose some radical conservatives who were haters and involved in violence in Israel. And he chose, chose people way on the left, some blue collar, some more of what we would think of as white collar, were all among his disciples. And he said, look, if you people, if you learn how to love each other, people are going to believe this is real. They're going to believe that I'm who I say I am because they see it in you. He said, this is going to be your greatest apologetic, the greatest proof of who I am, the way they live in community. Now we come to this book today and its purpose is all of that. It's like teaching us the nuts and bolts. What did this look like and, and how would this happen? And he said this is where his mission comes from, the Apostle Paul as he's writing this letter, this life in Christ. So that's what I want to look at with you today, sort of learning how do we begin to learn this pattern of life. Now, this little letter was written by the Apostle Paul, just the one guy, a Gentile guy, right, a Greek, came out of Greek culture, who he led to faith in Christ, this guy named Titus. And by the way, Paul visited the island of Crete. You'll see a map, and it's way over there on the eastern Mediterranean. You can see it circled there, this island, which is the largest of the Greek islands. He went there, and people came to faith. And what Paul did is when he sent this guy Titus and he's like, you gotta, you gotta help them learn how to live in community. You've gotta teach them what it means 
to follow me. And so that's what he did. Now, Paul, as he's writing this letter, has some huge problems to overcome that we may not even recognize when we start. And, and here's first, in Greek and Roman society, the people worshiped many gods, but none of them could be relied on. They were fickle. You see, at any moment, one might take an interest in you and you would feel like your life went well and then something would happen. You might not even know it, what, what it was and then your life would be met with calamity. But the Lord, the true and living God, is nothing like the false God. So, so how is he going to teach them about this? Th this is what Paul says. He says, God, who never lies, promised this before the ages began. He said, the first thing you got to know is who this God is. What he promises, he does, he cannot lie. And he put this plan for community, for a people together before our, our moment in history ever came, before the age we're living in came about. And so he said, look, you can rest in this truth because it comes from God who doesn't change, right? He's not gonna change his opinion on this. And he put this plan together before we ever were born. But then he has a second problem, and it's just as big. Imagine telling this little church, by the way, there's a Greek community, the way God planned their lives to be ordered. Think about that for a minute. Can you imagine, for example, somebody showing up here in the United States and saying, well, you guys really need to learn to live by the laws of Korea. You'd be like, well, we're not Koreans, and we don't even live in Korea. How could that possibly relate to us? You see, Paul is Jewish, and he's going to talk about a Jewish Messiah, and he's telling these Greeks on this island in the Mediterranean there's a certain way they're called to live. How can he possibly do that? I mean, think about that for just a minute, that somebody might have authority to give the fabric or framework of community to a whole other different group of people. And this is what he says. He says, this actually comes from the knowledge of the truth. He says, this has come from God, and it's for all people. It doesn't matter what country you live in. I mean, think about it right now. We're reading this 2,000 years later as authoritative for us to be applied right here at, at Granada in 2023 in diverse Miami, in the kind of age in which we're living. You've got to be kidding me. But this is what he's saying. And the reason he says this, he says, look, this comes from God. It's given for all people and all time as the pattern of life that God has for us. And it's all revealed in Jesus as we come to know him through the gospel. So you would say, look, this isn't guesswork. We're not groping in the dark on our own. And by the way, this is such good news, right? Because we as human beings, we've tested all kinds of things and we know, we know a lot of things that won't work. And the reason he can tell them this is because it comes from God to all of humanity, all these thousands of years later. It remains true today. Now, I remember um, years ago, I had a chance to meet Washington attorney Chuck Colson. You'll see a picture of him. He worked in the Nixon administration. And he actually sort of learned this truth uh, about God's truth in the process because he was thrown in jail for lying. And he was at a correspondence dinner one night. As he got to the table, everybody around his table, they were talking about 
whether, um, whether the Ten Commandments should be posted on a wall in a courtroom in Alabama. And he didn't say anything. He just listened. And the people at his table said, well, come on, the Ten Commandments, they come from, they come from religion. And uh, we're a secular society. We can't be putting that in there. I mean, it really has. And by the way, they're super old. They're almost 4,000 years old. What in the world? Why would they be up there? They, should, they have no place in public life. That was the conclusion they came to. And then, of course, the conversation continued. They talked about other subjects. And then they came around to another subject in the news at that time. It just so happens at a, at a university in the, in the Midwest, a student had stolen a copy of one of the major exams, like the final exam that his class had to take. And then what he did was he distributed it to all the other students in his class so that they would know what was on the exam. And then so Colson, he listened to all these people around the, oh, no, 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 this is wrong. We shouldn't be doing this kind of thing. And, and now is his moment. He hadn't said anything through the dinner. And he said, well... He said, what you were saying sounds a little like thou shalt not steal. Sort of, yeah, yeah, right? Of course, there was silence at the table. You see, the reality is they're talking about the need to order our world that God provided 4,000 years ago. This is the reality of this truth. God has given us the pattern for ordered community to sustain a group of people, to make it possible for us to live together and have respect for one another and walk together. That's where it comes from and how we can know it. And by the way, this is what set Israel apart in the beginning. God gave them his law. And then the followers of Jesus receive this truth in the gospel from God. You could say it's the instruction set for humanity to bind them together and to establish them in his truth. But you might, might ask, well, haven't other countries gotten this right? I mean, this can't be true that you have to have this, that this is it. How, haven't other folks done it right? I was reading not long ago uh, a work by a sociobiologist. Her name is Rebecca Costa. She wrote a really interesting book a few years back, and it does a fascinating study of the great civilizations of our world across time. And she talked about a civilization I didn't know a whole lot about, the Mayans. Do you know much about them? They came along, um, and, and they are one of the most advanced civilizations to ever be in our world. They design their own writing, complex mathematics. They have one of the most accurate calendars that human beings have, have ever been able to figure out and put together. They develop the arts and architecture, which you can see in that picture there. They were amazingly skilled farmers, and their civilization grew to over 15 million people over much of Latin, uh, Central America, where that is today. But all of a sudden, in about 900 AD, you could have snapped your fingers the civilization was gone. Why was it not sustainable? Why, what happened? The problems multiplied and the solutions dried up and they entered into a doom loop. And what she says is, look at all the great civilizations. Go back to those Greeks. What's happened to their culture now? And think about the Romans. What's happened to Rome? It was a great civilization. The Egyptians, you see, our communities fail and disappear. But you know, in one case, this isn't true. It's the people of God. Do you know that Christians have seen hundreds of nations rise and fall and are only now on the pages of history? They no longer exist. 
It's not because they're smarter or more resilient. They're not, or better people. They're not that either. It's because God preserved them, and he did this through the knowledge of truth, a life pattern. And he brings us to a knowledge of this truth through the gospel. This is what he's inviting us to. Hey, come to this life. And this is, again, what Paul says his mission is. He wants to show that believing in Jesus, it's not just an idea, it's a whole way of life. It's a way of treating each other and living together in community. And this is why God gave his people the law in the wilderness. This is what God said to them. Here's Moses preaching about it. He said, so be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in obedience to all that the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. Isn't that beautiful? So that you may live and prosper. He doesn't say, look, if you do these things, then I'll love you and save you. He gives this to them, the order for their society, because he already loves them. He already has saved them. And this is what he's given to us. He already loves us. He wants us to prosper and to enjoy many days. And so, by the way, you do know that God calls you to live in his truth, not to stifle your freedom. This isn't to take away your freedom, not to limit you. He does this because he loves you. For the same reason that you wouldn't put orange juice into the gas tank of your car. You know, it's not going to run. It's not going to work. And that's the reality with our lives. And so this is our mission at Granada, to learn this way of life together. And that's what we'll be doing this year, to enjoy this life together in Jesus. But there's a second thing we see about Paul's mission, and it's this. It's sort of hard. It's not for everyone. It's not for everybody. He says it like this, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, Now, Paul would love to see the whole world accept the truth about God, but he knows it's not going to happen. Why not? He uses that word elect, it's chosen of God, because just as Israel was chosen by God, Paul knows that the only people who are really going to enter into this life are those called by God to respond to his truth. It means we don't figure it out on our own and and we're not the ones rushing to God. He's pursuing us because we want life our way. Jesus explained it simply like this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Now Paul goes out and shares the gospel with everyone. He he does that, but he knows not everybody's going to listen. And you say, well, why is that important? Because you see, this community only works with people where God is at the center. He wants to nurture those who have been drawn by God. He knows that this life in God rests in him. And that's the striking thing, by the way, about the Ten Commandments. They were written on two tablets, and the second tablet... The ethicists in our culture say, wow, this is great stuff. We want to do this. Don't bear false witness. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't covet. But then they leave off the first tablet. And the first tablet is all about putting God at the center of your life. Have no other gods before him, right? Don't take his, use his name in vain. Don't make for yourself an idol and so on. And the problem is that that whole second table doesn't work 
unless we have the first, unless God is at the center. The way Martin Luther said it was like this, the reformer. He said, you will notice that every breaking of the law always involves a breaking of the first command, not have anything before God in your life. He says, so if you covet something, you've actually elevated something to be more important than God to you. And you've put God, you've relegated him to another place in your life. He says, the only way this will work is with God at the center of your life. You see, this life pattern is for the faith of the elect because it requires God. Here's Ann Voskamp. She says it like this. Live in a universe where the sun revolves around you, and eventually the life you want will wither and die. Only when your life revolves around the sun is there any hope of real life. And she explains it. The only way to have a good life is if Jesus is your whole universe. Jesus is not a belief to me. He is breath to me. He's not a lens for my life. He is my life. He is the only way not to suffocate on self. Isn't that powerful? You see, it's only by having my life centered on him that myself isn't, I'm not gonna suffocate on myself. And so we want good lives and healthy life patterns. And she says, look, Jesus has to be your life. Paul knows this. And by the way, he lived this. Because if you took the 10 commandments and you said, wow, how is Paul doing? He grew up as like this overachiever in the law. He did everything right, everything. He was the most faithful. He scaled the ladder of spiritual success. And you would think he's got it all. But when he met Jesus, he said it was all nothing. It was all rubbish. It was nothing in comparison to the life Jesus provided to him. Or C.S. Lewis put it like this. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. He says, you want to make sense of your life in our world and have a hope for the future, it'll be because it's illuminated by the truth of who Jesus is and his presence in your life. And that is what the gospel does. It reframes everything in our world. That's why this is a, a community of grace. We see it differently. Just as Paul saw his own life differently. And by the way, then he didn't think it was a big deal to suffer for Christ. It was hard. But he knew what it was all about. It made sense of his life. And that is what it happens when the standpoint point of truth, when we enter into the love of God. It's a dangerous thing, by the way. A story that's in one of uh, John Perkins. He's a, he's a spiritual hero of mine, too, if you've never heard of him. He was an African-American pastor. He is now. But when he grew up, he grew up in the South at the time of, like, greatest violence against African-Americans. Actually, his brother one day he was grabbed by the police and he was killed by the police. He himself was beaten within an inch of his life more than once and was put in prison. And now he's pastoring. He's an amazing guy. And along the way, he, he, he took along with himself a younger guy who was a white college professor and they teamed up to write a book together. You'll see him with them. That man's name is Charles Marsh. And one day he was on a walk with Charles by his house, like out in his fields. And Charles got all embarrassed to tell John, his friend, how racist his grandmother was. 
that she would regularly use the N-word and she, she confided in him that, that she thought blacks were better off being slaves. And there was such venom in her toward Martin Luther King Jr. and anybody who was in leadership as an African-American man or woman. And then Perkins stopped him for just a moment as they were walking and asked him a very strange question. This is what he said. What does she, that's your grandmother, what does she grow in her garden? Cucumbers, squash, mint, tomatoes. I have the sweetest tomatoes in my garden this summer. You can eat them like apples. Let me ask you another question. Does she like blueberries? I love blueberries. I always keep them in my refrigerator. When we get back to the house, I'm going to give you a bag of blueberries for your grandmother and tell her they're a gift from me. Now, he co-wrote that book with this man, this white man, and he said he has never been the same, quite the same, since he received those blueberries to give to his grandmother. Think about it. It's a moment of grace. Here's a person who suffered violence, who then sees hatred, and what does he do? He steps forward with the fruit of love, just blueberries, right? And this was the love of Jesus. You see, this is how Jesus changed the world. This powerful thing and the cross happened that was so big that was like, wow, God has love for us like this. And, and it's this love that's meant to shape the world. And something began to happen in people who could appreciate what God had done and the love that he was pouring out. And this new, new community came to be. You see, Jesus has to be at the center of this. You know, in our world, there are only three ways that you can call people together to organize them. There are only three ways in the world, really. One is you can do it by force. And the Romans were experts at this. And by the way, there are countries today who, to keep their people in line, will drive tanks through their neighborhood periodically to remind them who's in charge. But the second way is you can pay people. And that's pretty much what we do in our culture. You can give them money to get along with each other, right? And the third way, the only other way, is that if people enter in to covenant together, that they live in a promise. And here was a group of people that because of the love of Jesus were drawn into a kind of community they'd never experienced before that was made possible by love. And now they're living in it. And as I read this and I, I read that story about John Perkins, it's like, has this happened to you? Because by the way, if it hadn't, I think it's going to seem strange. If, has this happened to you? Has this happened in the love of Christ? It's like, oh my goodness, I've been loved. And wow, this, is, this opens up the world in a way I've never seen. Because if that hasn't happened, it's going to be hard for you to stomach this. It's going to be hard to accept this community. You see, this is the only way this community works where love comes from. And how we can be together as broken and sinful and diverse as we are. And you say, okay, okay, so if that's how it happens, that's how it works, what does it look like? What does it look like? Where does this new life in Christ take us? And Paul uses the briefest of words to describe. He puts it like this, which accords with godliness. Now be careful. He's not saying, hey, you need to be going to church and doing religious things. That's not what that word godliness means. He is talking about the life of Jesus then beginning to come through you. 
The character of God reflected in you. It, it looks, may look like obedience. It looks like faithfulness. It looks like loyalty. It looks like trust. It looks like kindness and goodness. That These things that come from God. You see, Paul could see this happening in people because of Jesus. And he said, that's it. The life of God is now in them. This beautiful thing. And that's what we long for in our community here at Granada. We long for this life that can only come from Jesus to be reflected in each of our lives as we, we learn to love one another and walk with each other in this difficult time in history. It looks like Jesus himself. Another guy I really like, Francis Chan, you'll see his picture too, is a pastor. He talks about how he was pastoring and over a number of weeks, folks showed up at his church and he met them and everything. And he was like, how, you know, what has God done in your life? How has God changed you? And like three or four guys said, you know, I have this amazing youth pastor. His name was Vaughn. His name was Vaughn and he invested in me and he loved me. And, and that's how I, you know, that's who, who helped me to see Jesus. And one day he was talking with one of the other pastors he met. His name was Dan. And Dan said, well, well, I know Vaughn. I know Vaughn. He, he's a pastor in San Diego now. And he takes people into the dumps in Tijuana where kids are picking through the garbage. And I, I was just with Vaughn in Tijuana. We would walk in the city and these kids would run up to him and, and they would show, he would show such deep love and affection for them. He'd, he'd hug them and he had gifts for them and food for them. And he figured out how to get them showers. Francis, it was eerie. The whole time I was walking with Vaughn, I kept thinking, if Jesus was on earth, I think this is what it would feel like to walk with him. He just loved everyone he ran into. People were just drawn into his love and affection. And as I read that story, I'm like, that's it, right? <laughs> that the life of Jesus is so reflected in a people. It's like, that's what it's all about. That, that's who we are. We belong to Christ. It's not saying everybody has to go to the dump in Tijuana. It's saying when we come into this life in Christ, a community is formed that then begins to reflect this love in extraordinary ways. It means putting up your Christmas lights all over again. It means that you surround people who are hurting and you help to come to support them. And that, you know what I say? That's where I want to be. And this book is an invitation. It's a journey. Would you come along and learn this way? And then begin to live this way as you experience the love of Jesus in your own life. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we do have a hard time believing. We have this historical snobbery that thinks we know so much more than the peoples that came before us, that the civilizations, than the civilizations that predated us. And Lord, then you show us Jesus, and you show us loving communities of very diverse people that come from thousands ago, years ago, that show us a love that, Lord, we so much need to learn that we see so little of here. So, Father, lead us. Lead us as Granada. We struggle with so many things, Lord. And lead us as individual people because our city so needs this love and grace. And, Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you that we received the blueberries that in the midst of being away from you, 
You showed us Jesus. You showed us the cross, the extent that you would go to to redeem us and to bring us home. And we thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.